0: Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
1: This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys.
0: Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're so excited to welcome Maura Healy to the show. Many of you know that Maura is the current Attorney General of the state of Massachusetts.
1: I'm so excited to talk to her. I feel like Maura is one of those people that as soon as you meet her, you just not only fall in love with her, but you're just so excited that she is out there fighting for justice. And for me, you know, we were athletes at Harvard at the same time and we have a lot of mutual friends and I was talking to my college roommate this morning and telling her that we were going to be talking to Maura and she had so many questions for me to ask her and she was telling me about her basketball career as a pro even before the WNBA was started she was a pro basketball player in Europe. That's not something you hear every day.
0: What does the Attorney General do? I think a lot of our amazing listeners might not know what an Attorney General does.
2: I'm so glad you asked. and and I agree. People don't know. I am, first of all, an attorney. I'm, I'm a lawyer. You have to actually be a lawyer to do this job. And for me, you know, life started in this profession after law school. I clerked for a federal judge. I then went to a big firm where I was really representing corporations and board members and executives and the like. I had a great experience as a business litigator for about eight or nine years, but something happened one summer, and my dad got sick from cancer and died quickly, and I just sort of had this realization, too, that the life is short, and what do I really want to do with my my legal career, right, and what I had trained for. And you know, in the back of my mind, I think always I wanted to, to do public interest work, you know, use my, use my law degree to, to, to be an advocate for people. But, you know, you, you get busy and you get on a certain track and, and you know, the hours build and, and before you know it, you've, you've been doing something for eight or nine years without picking your head up. And that was sort of a, a moment. I think we've all had those moments in our life where something was was catalytic in terms of a change. And for me, that was, that was the change. And I ended up taking a 70% pay cut, which was a little scary at the time, to go run the civil rights division, where instead of representing corporations and powerful interests, I was on the side of bringing civil rights cases, particularly on behalf of vulnerable people. And in that job, which was in the Attorney General's office, I saw the power of that office to help people. And it's what inspired me to run for Attorney General. So my job day to day is to oversee a a law firm of about 600 people where we're out there enforcing laws to fight against environmental pollution, to protect access to health care, women's access to reproductive health care, enforce laws that protect workers and, and consumers, and really stand up for the rule of law in our, in our states and around this country. It's a super cool job. I love it. Uh, I've loved every minute of it. It's brought me into some big, big battles against some powerful interests. And most uh, fundamentally, it's allowed me to have a job where day in and day out, you get to try to help the people in your state, whether it's you know on issues of substance use disorder and combating the opioid epidemic by going after some of those bad actors or making sure that people, you know, get paid the wages that they're due or aren't being victimized by human trafficking or predatory practices and the like. That's the job of the attorney generals. In short, we call ourselves the people's lawyer.
0: Before you became the attorney general, in between you know, switching jobs, you
2: had to run for office. What was that like? You know, it was well, I'd never done it before. So I grew up I grew up in New Hampshire, right? And when you grew up in New Hampshire, it's the presidential you know, season every, every four years. And as a kid, you're used to, to politics and seeing candidates come through. I'd never really been involved in campaigns, though, before. My parents were pretty involved in, in local government and the like, but, but I, just, I wasn't somebody who grew up wanting to be a politician. But again, I found myself in this position when I was working in the attorney general's office. The seat became open, and I thought, that the attorney general had a really cool job. And so I just decided naively that I would quit and run for office. Now, looking back, I realized how many people thought I was insane to do that. Uh, people were very nice to me. Like I wasn't the top deputy at the, at the attorney general's office even. I had done some major cases and you know had established myself with, with a bit of a reputation, but I, it wasn't like I anybody thought I would run for office, and I got in. I was the first one in, but then a short while later, a, a man got in who had been a longtime state senator. He was once uh, on, the, uh, on a statewide ticket, uh, the Democratic ticket in, in Massachusetts. He was well-known and, and respected, and everybody sort of thought the job was his, right? I just happened to get in the way, but I didn't know anything. I I was just running for the job that I thought I wanted and could do a good job at. And I have to say, I never really doubted that up until about two weeks before the primary. And in Massachusetts, the Democratic primary really is the election. Whoever wins that is generally going to win or was going to win the election. All the way through, I had just run all over the state, trying to talk to people, connect with people, raise money. I'd never done that before. I remember my first stump speeches. They were so super awkward looking back on that. But you grow and you learn. And I had, like, done everything I could do, right? Like, everything. And I had this amazing grassroots team, including a lot of people who I think I appealed to them because I wasn't from politics. You know, I wasn't part of the establishment. And and they knew the fight I would bring. So things were feeling good, but I remember uh, two weeks out, there was a poll that came out that showed me 10 points down. And I had given a speech that morning at our Chamber of Commerce. It was actually a debate with my opponent. I thought I did a really great job. I thought I connected with the audience. I thought that they liked me, everything was good. I come down uh, off the dais and I see my, my campaign team and they're totally forlorn. And I'm like, what? Turned out the then governor of Massachusetts was endorsing my opponent. Also the mayor, the then mayor of the city of Boston was endorsing my opponent. And they were really crushed by this, coupled with the the bad poll that we had received, showing us 10 points behind. This is two weeks out. It was the first time that I went home that afternoon and I cried. I remember sitting out on my my deck and I just cried. And I had to sort of pull myself together because I had to do a debate that night on TV. Long and the short, we won running away. I won like 347 out of 351 cities and towns. I don't think people saw that coming. And again, it was a testament to the wonderful grassroots support I, I gained. But it's just to say, Amy, like having been the person who was told it's not your time, it's not your turn, in fact some of my opponent's supporters approached me and said, you know what? You should drop out and see if he'll take you on as his chief deputy. So I remember that because how many women have been, first of all, you're never asked to run, right? Nobody, nobody, men have no problem just like waking up, looking in the mirror, saying I definitely should be president. Women don't have that, right? We, we don't have that within us. We're never asked to run. Nobody asked me to run. And you, you get a lot of, um, knows subtle or, or, or not so subtle along the re- the way. And so I just encourage women to just be super tough and just believe in yourself against, you know, all the noise that's out there and know that it's possible. I'm an example of that.
1: So you and I were both college athletes at Harvard together, and I can't help but think that that and your days as a professional basketball player in Europe, that there's some parallels to, you know, having to perform and having to debate on a day when you're just feeling really crappy or having to play an important game when you're not having a good day. Does it feel like a parallel to you?
2: I think it's such a a good point, Sam. I'm sitting down so y'all can't can't see me. I, I'm 5'4", so I'm, a, I'm really short, but I, I was a point guard. So Point guards are sort of the quarterback of the team. They're very bossy, and they sort of run the, run, run the plays and the whole bit. And because I'm 5'4", that was a, a good position for me. I wasn't going to get any taller. I loved basketball from early on. Athletics were a huge part of my life. My parents got divorced early on, and I honestly think I threw myself into school and to sports as a way to to cope. And fortunately, you know, I was able to captain the team at Harvard. That's where I played college basketball. And then I was able to go overseas and play professionally for a couple years before law school. From sports, I just think you learn, like, you learn what it takes to win. You learn how to deal with failure. You learn how to deal with hard moments, like that one that afternoon. You learn how to compete. And I think if I look back, Sam, I treated my run, that election, as a season. Every day I was going to, it was just practice, right? And you're going to have good days and bad days, but every day was like you were getting after it and, and hustling and either raising money, meeting voters, doing debates, whatever. And that mentality, I think, helped me. Uh, I think for women, you know, and I, I've known a number of women in office, it seems in office or in C-suites, there are a disproportionate number of women who played athletics, particularly college athletics. And I think it's tied to sort of the, the confidence that we learn how to build, self-esteem, perseverance, teamwork, um, and the like. Which, you know, in a rough and tumble environment, whether it's the boardroom or, or politics, you end up being well served, I think, by that. So I'm, I'm grateful to, to athletics and what it gave me. Do you still play basketball? I do poorly. Um, COVID, <laughs> so COVID's tough because because basketball is a team game and you're with people. And I played in a league after uh, I got back from Europe for about 20 years with a group of women. I mean, people go on, married, kids. We all get older, but we still come together to play. Covid stopped that, and so a couple months ago, I felt comfortable, and I reached out to one of my friends, and we said, "Let's let's get the girls out again." So we started playing. We'd meet up, you know, at a a playground and and play pickup, and it was great. Terrible on my Achilles. Like, it's different. You know, fifty is different from forty, is different from thirty, and and the Achilles is where I felt it first. But after a lot of foam rolling, I have to say, you know, we're it's all set. I'm also playing more tennis. I've um I've gotten back to playing tennis which is a sport I I've always loved.
3: And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like the more MQLs the better over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure.
4: That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of.
4: Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to the Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So you're the first openly gay attorney general. I read somewhere that you even chose Northeastern Law School because you heard it was a place that was welcoming and a, and a place that was good to come out. Is is that true?
2: Yeah. You know, I did not come out until after college. I actually, I think I had to go 3,000 miles away to Europe to play to figure that out. I returned from Europe um, looking to go to law school. I had a wonderful experience at Harvard, my undergrad experience. However, I, I happened to, to meet... A friend who was at Northeastern, she happened to be gay, and it just seemed to be a, a really comfortable environment. It also was a school that was very focused on public interest lawyering, social justice. It had an experiential learning component to it. And you know, it drew me in, and I had a had a great experience there. Remember, this is this is the mid 90s, right? I mean, this is a different time. And so finding an environment like that was really important because things were, things are still challenging today. And my heart goes out particularly to to our young people, members of our trans community. There's still a lot of struggles within the LGBTQ community.
1: Well, even the term openly gay, right? Like you hope that that word openly is eventually dropped from that. That's what strikes me. It's such a bizarre term.
2: It, well, I know, I guess it speaks to There may have been gay people in any number of positions as AGs, as governors, as secretaries of state, president. Who knows? Right. Because people were closeted at different times in in history. But it's not that way now. I'm proud to have been the first. I'm prouder that I'm not the last. There are actually two others in our community, uh, one from New Jersey and one from Michigan, who've joined us. And, you know, seeing is believing whether you're talking about representation among uh, the LGBTQ community, uh, among communities of color, gender, diversity matters. Seeing is believing. And so I, I I have to tell you this, it was kind of funny. Like when I ran here in Massachusetts, it was not even discussed. I didn't know if it was because Massachusetts, you know, we led on marriage equality and, you know, certain things were established here in the state when I was running in, in 2013. But The only thing that that stood out to people was the fact that I was a pro-basketball player. Like that was like the story, not that I would be the first day attorney general. The day after I won the election, there were all these international headlines about my my win because I, I recognized that it was historic in the sense that I was the first ever, but it was just sort of funny because it was like that had never been the thing before. Which is great. I also, you know, will say, and I struggled with this some because, I don't know, uh, let me me say it this way. One thing that I did come to appreciate later was the fact that there were, at various times, young people or parents, others who would come up to me and say, we're really glad you're in this role. Like, you gave me hope. You give me hope for my son or daughter that they could be all that they want to be and that there are opportunities there for them. And, you know, that's why I'm such a a big believer in, in supporting those who've been marginalized for so long. Not only is it the right thing to do, we'll have better policies and representation, it also sends the message and inspires others from those communities to be all they can be, right?
0: You have to make really hard decisions every day about what to pursue as attorney general who to go after, what injustices to try to solve for, what investigations to carry on. How do you do that?
2: I have a great team and I listen to them. And I listen to the people of the state. I mean, the reason that I was the first AG to sue the Sackler family and and Purdue for their role in the opioid crisis is because traveling the state, I heard from so many people, grandparents raising grandkids, parents who'd lost their sons or daughters to, to this disease, That I knew we had to do something and we had to take on this powerful interest and we had to name names, including naming the Sackler family members. I knew from listening to, to my team about what was happening on climate change and where we needed to go, not only as a state, but as a country, that we had to sue Exxon and my office has been in a lawsuit against Exxon. They continue to try to throw us out of court. We continue to win and we're going forward with our case. But I knew that was important because we had to tell the story of the fossil fuel industry, what had happened so that the right measures can be taken. On gun violence, you know, when I listen to uh, the moms who've who've lost uh, their kids to to gun violence uh, in our streets and our communities, you know, when I talk to, to family members who've lost loved ones, whether they're in Parkland, Florida or uh, Colorado or now name, name a location, right? Look at how many mass shootings we've had. You know, how can you not use your authority and your power as attorney general, but to act and take on the powerful interests? I always view the job, Amy, is we've got to provide bread and butter work to constituents, you know, and we've gotta make sure that we protect consumers and workers and we stand up for civil rights. We've gotta be able to take on the powerful interests too. And so that set me against Purdue and Exxon and the NRA. It also for the last four and a half years set me against the former president and we took him to court hundreds of times successfully just to hold on to the rule of law and try to preserve some basic democratic norms. And how
1: about the issues that you cared about, but were left on the cutting room floor just because of bandwidth or time?
2: You know, it's a great question, Sam. There's always more you can do. Certainly, having to deal with the former president who did so many things that were illegal and unconstitutional did take considerable time. But you know, if we weren't there, we would not have preserved the Affordable Care Act. We would not have preserved DACA and, and the program for DREAMers. We would not have successfully fought efforts to mess around with the census. Um, you could just go through the list of, of things that Donald Trump did. We had to be there, but I can tell you that my team was ready for that and was able to do the, the other work alongside. An area though, I'd have to say, where I am acutely focused now is on equity and racial justice. I mean, I, started, I said I started my job in the Attorney General's office as civil rights chief. And one of the things I think we're experiencing in this moment, two pandemics, COVID, all that that's revealed about the fragilities in our healthcare system, our supply chain, who we think of as an essential worker, how we think about work now. We also saw racial disparities, right, exposed and exacerbated there. And right alongside that, George Floyd's murder. And my colleague Keith Ellison and his team did a wonderful job of prosecuting. Derek Chauvin. But this moment of racial reckoning that we're in, grappling with 400 years of systemic racism, you know, this to me is the work we need to do. And so there's an equity lens that I'm applying to everything that our office does and certainly would like to have done more already than than we have done on this. So what are some concrete things that the office
0: is doing to focus on equity?
2: We take the view that you got to understand that racial disparities exist across every realm of society. Employment, education, health care, transportation, housing, and yes, criminal justice. I think we get a lot of focused discussion on criminal justice, but understand, and I say this as a prosecutor, there are all sorts of reasons why people come into the criminal justice system dealing with some of those root issues. You know, what is happening with early education and childcare, access to jobs, access to education, food security, housing and security. If we only focus on criminal justice, which is absolutely important, and I have been a leading reformer here in our state on calls for policing reform and criminal justice reform. But if we only focus on that, we miss, we really miss the opportunity that we need to seize as a country to make things better for all. So what are we doing, for example? Recently, we put out a report on healthcare disparities, racial disparities in healthcare, identifying concrete things we can and need to do, better collection of data, diversifying our healthcare workforce so there's more cultural competencies in the care that's given and, and, and received. On our environment, we're focusing on our environmental justice communities, going after pollution in those areas that disproportionately affects people of color. I could go on and on through the list, our focus on the consumer fund, you know, going after predatory lenders or debt collectors that disproportionately target people of color. It's got to be, you know, equity is hard, right? I mean, equity is hard and it requires an intentionality day after day after day. It also requires the ability to have hard conversations, but if you're going to get real about race, like you need to be able to have hard conversations, difficult conversations and work through that. And it's something that I guess I try to model as a as a leader, as a, as an elected and something that our office is is trying to do.
1: How do you handle conflict in your own personal life? Like when you decide to confront a family member or friend about something that's hurt you? Because I imagine if you're fighting for justice every day in your professional life, you might be just too exhausted to argue about something in your personal life.
2: Well, I would say that, you know, we all have personal conflict, right? With our partners, with our friends, with our siblings, family. You know, it's something I welcome advice from anyone on how to have difficult conversations, particularly with those with whom you're close, right? But for me, it's, it's, It's better to talk, I think. I found it better to try to communicate. I think as a leader, I've learned a lot about empathy um, and the need to listen, which, you know, as a lawyer, as a politician, may not come naturally at first to some, like, you know, because you you always want to talk, you always want to make a point, you always want to say something. What I've learned is is the power of listening. And you listen to someone's experience... You have an opportunity to register and sort of to validate that, right, through empathy. And then you may not end up seeing eye to eye on something. Or sometimes when it comes to my my work, I may not even be able to help that person. But we walk away from it and they walk away from it feeling heard and feeling seen. And I think that's, to me, that's a big part of what's happening in society and why Things are, are not where they need to be. There aren't enough people who feel seen, who feel heard. And we need to work to change that. And we change that through, through empathy and understanding, which you know, I, it is constant work in progress for me. To be there to, to just pause, listen, hear that person, right? Make sure, not just like listen and I heard them, but like hear that person. Try to understand where they're coming from. I found this to be the case, too, when it comes to issues of police reform and criminal justice reform. There's so much more commonality out there than the the current, you know, media, in some ways, coverage of this suggests. And I understand that. I, I, divisiveness... Drives attention, right? I mean, we all prefer to look at a car crash than than, than a pretty painting. Isn't that sick? The studies show that the, that's what people turn towards. So, it's it's a little bit like how do you how do you protect yourself and and fight and resist that that effort to turn towards the car crash rather than focusing on something you know positive and uplifting and constructive.
1: You were on top of the opioid crisis from very early on. You were a little bit like a lone ranger against the Sackler family and the crisis. And for anyone not familiar with the Sackler story, I happen to be in the middle of reading Empire of Pain, and I highly recommend it. It's really an incredible story, and you have a huge role in it. Can you tell everyone not as familiar with the crisis and the saga what you've been through and a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, I think this has been a matter where I've really, probably the the thing I've been most focused on as attorney general over the last seven years. So there's a company called Purdue Pharma. It made OxyContin. Oxy came to market in the late 90s. What we learned is that over time, Purdue, which was run by this very powerful Sackler family, there were no public shareholders of this company. It was all held by this family that over time, they engaged in really deceptive marketing and sales techniques. When they brought Oxy to market, they lied about its addictive nature. They lied about its efficacy. They told doctors and others that it was basically no more harmful than aspirin uh, or, or Advil. And they then worked the system, worked Congress, worked the FDA to to basically get it set up so that they were in a position to sell as much Oxy to as many people as possible at as high a dose as possible. The Sackler family also was the family that brought Valium to the market years ago. Their forebear was the person who was a doctor but actually pioneered the marketing of of medication, right? And this, I think, story is about Profits over people. It's the most egregious example of corporate greed I've ever seen. And what happened over time is that as doctors got marketed to by sales reps, the prescriptions went up and so did overdoses. The stories that were so common, student athletes who got injured, prescribed oxy and then addicted for life, overdosing, ultimately dying. I mean, I can just go on and on. So many people who who found themselves, because again, these were pills that you get prescribed by a doctor, you pick up at a pharmacist. So, so many people unknowingly found themselves addicted.
0: I lost a family member in this exact
2: way. I'm so sorry, Amy, and honestly, it's hard to find somebody in this country who doesn't know someone directly, if not, hasn't lost somebody in their family. And so my heart goes out to you and to your family members. And it's because of stories like that and yours that I set about an investigation in March of 2015. You see, Purdue made a deal. They got in trouble back in 2007. The feds and the Department of Justice had, had caught up to them. And Justice struck a deal with them. And Purdue paid a big fine. And a couple of executives pled guilty. But guess what? they went ahead and they doubled down on their bad behavior. And over the next 10 years, they sold even more and more of this toxic stuff and more and more people died and it reached crisis epidemic proportions. So that's what I was inheriting as attorney general. And that's what led me to open the case. I also thought, as as I mentioned in private practice, I used to represent businesses and corporations. I also used to represent executives and board members corporations don't just run themselves. And to me, with justice having given a pass to the executives in the past, we needed to name names and bring the accountability. And I think that's one thing that I'm very proud that my team in Massachusetts AG's office did. We did an extensive investigation. We were the first to name and tell the whole story of what the Sacco family members did. And that was followed by a number, thousands of other lawsuits. Uh, we recently reached a resolution uh, because Purdue was driven into bankruptcy for the first time ever. The Sacklers, who spent a lifetime hiding behind non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, are gonna have to produce every single email, memo associated with this company, including attorney-client privilege documents. It's gonna be like 30 million documents. And And you mentioned Empire Pain. Patrick Radenkeff's book is an incredible book. He's an incredible writer and researcher. He tells the story of what happened here. And now we're going to have 30 million documents, many, most of which have never been seen before. I hope that they will inform public health experts going forward. I hope that they will get Congress and the Department of Justice to act, to close loopholes, to, to use resources to go after corporate bad actors uh, more effectively so this never happens again. And we're also bringing back over $4 billion in in relief that, you know, in Massachusetts is going to go directly for treatment and and care for individuals.
4: And now for a This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man
4: How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest love the connection to people i think at the core what i get excited about what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them hear back from them know that i'm part of the routine and i look forward to
3: getting on the air
4: i look forward to it in these exciting times we're looking to the math the strategy and analytics and the magic the creative spark more than ever Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You know, you talk about with the Sackler family and with Big Pharma, one thing aside from these legal settlements, which, I mean, that's thank you for doing that work. Somebody needed to, and it will change things. But on a systemic level, we need the legislature to change things. Are you ever going to be on that side of things? I hear you're going to run for governor.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know what, what I'm going to do. I am up. You know, It's funny you have these jobs, but my job... The term ends in 2022, so I'm taking this summer to think about it and think about whether it's this position or, or another position. I want to be in a position to make a difference, to make a contribution. I've loved public service, and I'm just going to take this time to to, to reflect on that, and I'll make a decision. I certainly, though, will continue to be, in whatever realm, a strong advocate for behavioral health resources and resources for substance use disorder. I mean, this is such an unmet need in our country. I can't think of a family that isn't needing some form of behavioral health services, right? Whether for a kid or a parent or a grandparent. I mean, you just think about the the isolation, the anxiety this year, the depression. You think about trauma and whether it's by, by gun violence or domestic violence or... You know, I work with a lot of immigrant communities, the traumas they've experienced. We just have a huge need in our country. And certainly, you know, we don't have the resources in place. I've thought for a long time, we need like a full out Peace Corps style effort on recruiting people into behavioral health. Part of it is that behavioral health just didn't pay as well, right? I mean, it's really hard to get insurance coverage for behavioral health. It's hard to find providers. You know i talked to, to so many families here the wait times even in massachusetts where we have really some terrific healthcare care providers and health care right we were the first state to pioneer universal health care you have wait times six months that's just like devastating in the life of a child so amy i'm going to continue to advocate for funding on the state level on the federal level on true parity when it comes to mental health and I think we still have work to do on addressing issues of stigma, right? I think that's one thing that, that helped Purdue and the Sacklers keep everybody in the dark. People were afraid to come forward and tell their stories. Hopefully, we've, we've really cracked that open, but I know we have more work to do there.
1: Speaking of domestic violence, there are not many attorneys general who you can work alongside with on many issues and see eye to eye with. So I'm certain it was a huge surprise to you when someone you worked so closely with on a lot of issues affecting women, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, turned out to be a predator. What was that like for you?
2: I think that was a really hard, hard news, hard bit of news for for all of us in, in the Attorney General ranks. You know, we know each other professionally. We don't always know each other personally. And- Attorney General Schneiderman, as Attorney General, was was a strong proponent of of women's rights and and women's access to reproductive health care and, and so many causes. So it was it was really devastating and, and and shocking. I've had the privilege of working with with Tish James, who's the New York Attorney General, and you know we continue to work closely with New York and continue to work closely with with colleagues. Um, on both sides of the aisle as best we can but you know you you never really understand or know anybody's individual circumstance do you
1: We had Tanya Salvaratnam one of Eric Steinerman's ex-girlfriends who's an incredible woman went to Harvard brilliant talented and she got caught in a relationship with him, and she'd never been a victim before and wrote a book about her experience. But it's one of those things where you can think you know someone and you don't necessarily know what they're like behind closed doors.
2: That's right. And on that And on that, you know, I think about her as a survivor. I think about other survivors. It's just the courage that it takes for them to tell their stories and to speak up against abuse. You know, I I just have been so in awe of and admiring the women, though not all women, certainly there are men who've been victims of of sexual violence as well, but, but the survivors who've had the courage to tell their story. And, you know, that's important for accountability. It's also important for like a reset in culture, isn't it? Like, I think following Me Too, there are certain things, whether people believe it or not, they're saying the right things. You know, they're seeing the right things about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Uh, We need to continue to push for that, make that, and actually make that internalized and real and genuinely felt everywhere. But I do see a lot of progress on that front. And again, you know, as somebody who brings cases on behalf of people, it is the people who enable us to do our work. It is the people and their lived experience that allows us to do our work. And in doing our work, we hopefully help others.
1: Do you ever worry about safety since you're going up against all of these powerful people all the time? How does that impact your life?
2: I'm mindful of it. I mean, if you looked at my social media, I, you know, I, I get any number of trolls. I've had death threats. I, I have a security team as part of executive protection. So they take good care of me and, and we're vigilant. But in this day and age, it's, it is on your mind. I try not to let it affect what I do, but particularly when it came to to my enforcement of, of gun laws, you know, Massachusetts has gun laws. And one of my jobs as attorney general was to make sure we were going to enforce gun laws, including our state's ban on assault weapons. When I did that, and I sent a notice out reminding people that those were banned, I uh, had major protests. I remember driving by the state house on Saturday and there were people, hundreds and hundreds of people lined up with posters with my face on it with, you know, Hitler style mustache and and all sorts of terrible things sort of said, And it was very unnerving to see that. Um, As I say, I feel, you know, well protected and taken care of, but I think anybody in public life these days, I mean, look at what happened. Look at the attacks on our election officials. Republicans and Democrats who are simply trying to do their job. That's why I think we need to come together as a country and just really crack down on certain things. Like we can disagree about policy, you know, and we can have differences of opinion and we can have a so-called public square and debate that and talk about that, but you can't threaten people. You know, you can't, you you can't physically hurt people in furtherance of, of your agenda. And, you know, unfortunately we're seeing too much of, of that these days. But that's just part of the part of the landscape we're in.
1: All right, Mora, we are going to move over to our lightning round and ask you a series of really quick questions and you just give us one word answers. Amy, why don't you kick us off?
2: What are you reading? I'm reading this book, Miss Iceland. I just went to Iceland. Fantastic place, highly recommend it, and Iceland has a number of really kick ass authors.
1: What's your morning routine?
2: Coffee. More coffee, (laughs) a stretch, and then I try to have some, like, healthy shake or something. Who leaves you starstruck? Oprah, still. And most recently, that little girl who won the Spelling Bee Championship, the world record holder for dribbling. She's a basketball player. I love her, but she leaves me starstruck this week.
1: What do you think of all the wealthy men going into space?
2: (laughs) I don't think I can capture it in one word.
0: I could talk about our talk with Mora all day long because there were so many threads I wanted to pull that we didn't get a chance to go deeper into. I mean, for me, like as a lawyer, when I think about Mora's job, like she has to make all of these incredibly hard choices about how she best serves the people. Because as she said, I think a few times, right, she sees herself as the people's lawyer. Like what are the issues that matter the most. And right, and remember, she's been leading that office through a pandemic, which had a ton of legal consequences too.
1: Well, and Amy, I feel like there were a lot of topics that you and I wanted to cover with her that we didn't even get to. So for example, the pandemic we didn't even really touch on. We didn't touch on prison reform, which both of us are so passionate about. And, you know, I feel like What I would love to do is just have her back when she does run for governor, because you and I both know she's going to spend this summer deciding to run for governor. Maybe we'll get it when she's ready. Exactly. I do think that we'll have her back when she's running for governor, because there's just so much to talk to her about. And I think that, you know, each of her cases is just so fascinating. And again, Amy, you must read this book, Empire of Pain. It's really extraordinary. And she's such a big part of it.
0: I already ordered it. So good call. Good call. (laughs) Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
1: We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast.
0: What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at
1: parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe crane and our male perspective, Lou Burns.